Well, it's great to be with you all this morning. Um, the last two weeks, I've kind of had kind of my own little little ailment to deal with. Apparently, when I was born, I was born with a tiny little hole in the back of my right eye. And so for the last two weeks, for whatever reason, it has let fluid into my eye that's bubbled my retina out, distorting my vision. So right now, both eyes are open. I see double which as a speaker, it feels pretty good. There's twice as many people in the auditorium right now. Um, but all in all, it's actually really disorienting. It's really frustrating. If I want to read, I have to wear an eye patch to see clearly. Um, and, you know, you would think that a guy working at a church who has to wear an eye patch for medical reasons would receive some amount of grace from his coworkers. That is the name of our church after all. But every time I pull out the eye patch, I get unending pirate jokes, and I didn't want more of the same from all of you, so I would rather risk blindness this morning uh, than pull out the eye patch. If you see me closing my eyes while I try to read this morning, that's why. Well, it is amazing to me that something so small, this microscopic little hole in the back of my eye, can have such an effect on my life. It can so change how I see and interact with my world. And that is very similar to the book of Philippians. A tiny little thing, four chapters. It's shorter than most articles in Time magazine. And yet it has had a profound effect on my life. The book of Philippians has changed the way that I see my world, that I see my God, that I see myself. And I believe that it will be the same for you this semester as we study it. I've talked to a lot of you over the last couple of weeks who have studied the book of Philippians and, and you've said the same thing. Hey, this book changed my life. It changed my values and my beliefs and my priorities and my behavior. That's what Philippians will do. Four short chapters that are incredibly dense in theology and truth. I'm really excited this semester as we look at this book, as we come to see our lives as God sees them through the book of Philippians. So each week we'll take a little section of this book and dig into it. But before we do that, I want us to do a little survey of the book. What do we need to know about the book of Philippians before we study it? Well, first I want to tell you a little bit about who wrote it. The author, as you probably know, is the Apostle Paul, and Paul's background is very significant to what he says to us in this book. So turn to the book of Philippians. I want you to look in chapter 3. Paul's background, his life experiences, play a very significant role in the book of Philippians, perhaps more than any other of his letters. Look with me in chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Paul talks about his life growing up. He says of himself, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul was born a Jew, but he was no mere Jew. He was of the religious elite. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, trained in Jerusalem. He was a practicer of the, of the law of the Jews to such an extent. He was so righteous outwardly that he could say, according to the law, at least as the Pharisees interpret it, I was blameless. I was that good of a guy. He was so zealous for Judaism that he persecuted the early church. He imprisoned many believers. He even put to death followers of Jesus Christ. And then on his way to the city of Damascus, Paul encountered something he did not expect, or someone he did not expect. He encountered Jesus Christ. Jesus, the risen Lord, revealed himself to Paul. Paul realized his serious mistake, fell on his knees, repented of his sin, and believed in Jesus as his Messiah. But interestingly, Jesus wasn't just interested in saving Paul. Jesus had a mission for Paul. 
Jesus set Paul apart as the apostle or sent one to the Gentiles. Paul took the gospel throughout the Roman world. Really, he was the one who planted churches throughout the Roman Empire. And Paul's mode of operation was as he planted one church and then moved on to another, he would write letters back to the churches that he had planted. And many of those letters became our New Testament. And we're looking at one this semester, the letter of Philippians. Now, what's going on in Paul's life when he writes this particular letter? Well, look with me at chapter 1, starting in verse 12. We get a little indication of where Paul is as he writes. He says, Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. So Paul writes Philippians from prison. He is in prison. We know he's in prison in Rome, that mention of the Praetorian Guard. Those were elite troops who guarded the emperor in Rome. So Paul is in prison in Rome. This is probably his first imprisonment. We're talking maybe 61, 62 AD when he writes this letter. Now, who does he write to? What do we know about the recipients of this letter? Well, it's the church in the city of Philippi. Uh, That church was planted by Paul about 10 years before he wrote this letter. That account is given to us in Acts chapter 16. It has the distinction of being the first church planted on the continent of Europe. Uh, Paul came to the church in Philippi and planted this church. As he went and found people to share the gospel with, actually the first person to respond was a woman named Lydia. Women play a very significant role in the church of Philippi. Uh, This church over the last decade, since Paul planted this church, has proven remarkably faithful as servants of Jesus Christ and partners of Paul. That's what you really need to know about this church, remarkably faithful. They gave to Paul financially time and time again to support his ministry. In fact, their most recent gift is kind of the inspiration for this letter. Paul is writing this as kind of a missionary thank you letter. He'll get to that in chapter 4, thank you for your gift. They didn't just send money, they sent him people. They sent a servant named Epaphroditus, a guy to go minister to Paul while he was in prison. This was such a faithful church, in fact, that Paul will use them as a model for churches that aren't doing so well. The church in Corinth, always in trouble. Paul points them to the church in Philippi. These are the guys you should follow. Uh, They're so faithful, in fact, that when Paul talks to them, he talks to them as if they are equals. If you read the book of Philippians from beginning to end, you will notice Paul never mentions that he's an apostle. He never needs to pull out the title. He never needs to say, hey, I'm your boss. He never needs to do that because they're his friends. They followed him faithfully for years. In fact, instead of calling them like his children, no, he calls them partners in the gospel. You're my partners. This ministry we're doing together. You and I are on the same footing before the Lord. So a remarkably faithful church living in a very significant city. I want to tell you a little bit about the city of Philippi. Uh, here's where it is. It's kind of a map of the modern world. you got Turkey and Greece and Israel. And then the lines are Paul's second missionary journey as he was planting churches. And he gets to modern-day Europe and in the, in the nation of Greece there as it is today. And he gets to the city of Philippi. Very significant. It's a stopping point on that little red line. That's the Via Ignatia. It linked the eastern part of the Roman Empire with the western part. Philippi was a very significant place, was near gold mines, very wealthy. It was a place uh, where a couple very significant battles happened in the history of the Roman Empire. And actually, the emperor settled the, the soldiers of those battles back in Philippi, and he gave them an incredible privilege, an incredible privilege. Here's the, uh, the center of Philippi as it is today, actually quite a ruin left. It's really beautiful. Uh, the citizens of Philippi were given an incredible privilege by their emperor. It's called the Italic Rite. It means, basically, Roman citizenship. 
The citizens of Philippi, these, these, these descendants of soldiers, were given Roman citizenship. To them and all of their descendants, they would always be citizens of the city of Rome. And that brought with it some pretty significant privileges. If you lived in Philippi as a citizen of Rome, you were governed by Roman law, not the arbitrary laws of people around you. You didn't pay taxes. That's kind of nice. Uh, you could not be tortured or imprisoned without a fair trial. You had the right to own and sell land. You know, you look at that, and other than the whole taxes thing, we kind of think, well, doesn't everybody deserve that? So kind of natural rights, right? Well, not in the ancient world. The vast majority of people living in the Roman Empire were not Roman citizens. They did not have these rights. They could be killed for any reason. Tortured, imprisoned, could not own land, none of that stuff. Very, very few people were citizens of Rome. That set Philippi apart. This city was incredibly privileged. It was different than all the cities around it because the residents of Philippi were citizens of Rome with all of these privileges from birth. I would guess that probably for most citizens of Philippi, their greatest possession, their most valued possession in life was their Roman citizenship papers. Probably protected those more than anything else. Well, that's why it's no surprise that in the book of Philippians, Paul focuses on the theme of citizenship. We're going to see that come up over and over again. He, he focuses on the theme of citizenship. I think you could make a case that the whole book of Philippians is designed to answer the question, what does it mean to live as a good citizen? What privileges and priorities to my life does citizenship bring? But interestingly, surprisingly, Paul is actually not talking about Roman citizenship. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's talking about something far more important than their Roman citizenship. He's talking about their citizenship in heaven. As much greater as heaven is than Rome, so their heavenly citizenship trumps their Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship is nothing compared to that. That's Paul's big idea, really, I would say to you in the book of Philippians, at least as I see it, is their heavenly citizenship. He wants them to consider what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven on earth? What privileges and priorities does that bring in my life? What privileges, what things do I get because I'm a citizen of heaven? What priorities, what, what duties, what responsibilities do I have on earth as a citizen of heaven? That's what the whole book is focused on. And uh, Paul needed to remind the, the church in Philippi about their heavenly citizenship because at the time that he wrote this letter, they were beginning to face some serious challenges. Three major threats faced the church in Philippi at this time. Uh, number one, they were supposed to be faithful heavenly citizens in the midst of internal disunity. Even in a church as mature as the church in Philippi, the ugly sins of selfishness and pride can tear their fellowship apart. Even as mature as they were, they were in, in danger of pride and selfishness tearing them apart. They were also in danger from false teaching. False teachers were coming in, sneaking into their fellowship to lead them astray from the simple truths of the gospel. Finally, they were suffering from persecution. Paul was in prison by this time, and they would also begin to face things like imprisonment, even death, for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. So Paul writes the book of Philippians to address these needs. And, and what I want us to notice, as you look at those three things, I would submit to you that we face the same threats today. We face those same challenges. Grace Bible Church is in danger from those same three things. Uh, we, we believe that relatively we're a fairly mature church. Guess what? We all struggle with the sins of pride and selfishness. Those sins left unchecked will tear us apart. 
will destroy our fellowship. We face that threat from the inside. We too face false teaching. American Christianity is ripe with false teaching. And we need to be ready to, to refute that and to stand against it. And we too face persecution in a different form. I don't think any of us are, in fa- are facing imprisonment for our faith, at least here in America. But we face suffering. It costs us to be aligned to Jesus Christ. And if our culture is any indicator, it will cost us more as time progresses to be faithful to Jesus in this country. So we face the same threats that they did. So the book of Philippians, it's a letter in a sense to us as well, teaching us how do we be good citizens of heaven here on earth? How do we discharge our duties as citizens of heaven in the midst of these challenges, in the midst of these threats? What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven when we're still on earth, when we're not home yet? It's a big idea of the book of Philippians. So each week of this semester, we will take a passage within the book of Philippians And we'll see what it teaches us about our heavenly citizenship, what it teaches us about our privileges and priorities as citizens of heaven. And we're going to do that this week as well. So I want you to flip to the beginning of the book of Philippians. We're going to start with a very short little passage this week. Just the first two verses. That's our study today. Just the first two verses of Philippians. If you'll read with me, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a greeting. Paul starts most of his letters with greetings, just like you would. You identify who you are, who they are, and you say, hello. It's basically what Paul's doing here, but this is no mere salutation to pass over and get to the meat of the letter. It's actually pretty full of theology. It's remarkable, two short verses that teach us a lot about what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Uh, Specifically, what I would say is that these two verses teach us about our identity as citizens of heaven. Now that we're no longer citizens of earth, now that we're citizens of heaven, we have received a new identity. It's just as if you left the United States and you moved to England, and you become a citizen of England over time, and, and you receive a new passport and a new driver's license, and a new social security card, or whatever it is they have over there. You would receive a new identity because you have transferred your citizenship. Well, so it is for us. We're no longer citizens of earth. We're now citizens of heaven. So we've received a new ID. And it's significant if you look at those two verses. Notice the person who's mentioned three times, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the central figure of verses 1 and 2, actually, of the whole book of Philippians. Our new identity is wholly founded in Jesus Christ. This new identity we receive as citizens of heaven, it's all about our connection to Jesus. We don't have this somehow separate from Jesus. It's because we are in Jesus that we have this new identity. So I want to spend some time this morning looking at this new identity. Paul gives us this identity in three titles or three facets, three kind of ways he looks at this new identity. We're going to look at those three titles uh, out of order, more in a a logical order than in in the order that's given in the text. The first one that I want to look at is a title, saints. We are saints in Christ Jesus. Now, saints is a translation of the Greek word hagias. It's usually translated holy in your Bible. Which is interesting. So saints and holy, that's the same word in Greek. Uh, that, that word means to be set apart. Okay, so there's, there's a common pool where everyone is, and you are set apart from that common pool of people. When it's used as a title for people, like it is here in this passage, it refers to those people whom God has reached down and he has set them apart as holy. He's set them apart as righteous compared to everyone else. When this title is used, it's not looking at their lifestyle, at their behavior. It's looking at their position. It's about what God has done, not them. So a person can be a saint even if he or she doesn't act very holy. 
It's about what God has done, not about what, what we do, not about our lifestyle. You see that in another greeting that Paul gives, actually, in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, "...to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints." To be a saint means that you are a person who has been called in love by God. You you didn't work to be a saint. You didn't earn the status of saint. God called you in love to be a saint. Okay, now what happens when we're a saint? What what does it mean for us? What do I receive as a saint? Look at verse 2. What do saints get? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, let me ask you, what do human beings deserve from God? What do we merit from God? Well, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All human beings are sinners. All of us have rebelled against God. We have disobeyed God. So what do we deserve from God? We deserve death. We deserve punishment. We deserve condemnation. And yet, as saints, what do we get? Grace and peace. Just the opposite. Grace means getting something you don't deserve, something good that you do not merit. We've received as saints grace from God both in the past. In the past when you trusted in Jesus as your Savior, God gave you grace in the form of forgiveness of your sins, in the form of justification. He declared you righteous in the form of giving you His Holy Spirit. We receive grace in the present. Moment by moment, God protects us from the evil one. God enables us to obey. And we receive grace in the future. When we go to heaven, we will be glorified. We'll be given resurrected bodies. We will be rewarded. So we receive grace, past, present, and future. We also receive peace. The word is very significant. Paul's a Jew. When he uses that word, he's using it in an Old Testament type way. In the Old Testament, it was the word shalom. It didn't just mean like cessation of warfare. It meant wholeness, complete blessing, perfect relationships. We have perfect peace with God and with one another because we are saints. Now, let me ask you, how is this possible? We deserve God's condemnation. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve death. How is it that we receive grace and peace instead? Well, look at the words that follow the word saint. In Christ Jesus. That's a prepositional phrase. I don't know if you remember seventh grade grammar. That's a little prepositional phrase. In Christ Jesus is actually probably the three most significant words Paul uses anywhere in the New Testament. Whole books have been written, whole classes at seminary have been taught on the phrase, in Christ Jesus. That's huge for Paul. Everything about you that's important is in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you have nothing. If you're in Christ Jesus, you have everything. I think Paul means a couple things here when he says that we're saints in Christ Jesus. Number one, he means that Jesus is the means by which we become saints. See that in the, in the book of Ephesians. Let me show you a, a passage here. Ephesians 1, 7. Paul tells us there, In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So how is it that we became saints, that we, that we got redeemed, that our sins were forgiven? Well, it's through his blood. Christ did the work to make us saints, the cross work. He died on the cross for our sins. What Paul's telling us here is, you know, to become a saint, it's not like Christ did 90% of it and you do 10% of it. Christ did it all. Christ completely did all the work that was necessary to make you a saint by dying on the cross. His work on the cross is the means by which we become saints. That's the first thing that Paul means by this phrase, in Christ. Second thing that he means is it's only in relationship with Jesus that we can be saints. Another significant passage many of you have memorized. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you want to have peace with God the Father, how do you do it? 
through relationship with Jesus Christ. Contrary to what our world says, there are not multiple paths to God. There are not many ways to become a saint. There's only one way, through relationship with Jesus. We are saints in Christ because Christ did all the work to make us saints, and because it's only in relationship with Jesus that we can become saints. I want to give you an illustration. When I, when I try to think about this significant phrase, in Christ, I think about high school. And in high school, um, I got a chance to go to Disney World. And I went to Disney World in Matt Jennings. That's my brother, younger brother. Uh, he, he wrote a, an essay, and it won a contest. And the grand prize was an all-expense-paid trip for your whole family to Disney World. I'd always wanted to go, so this was awesome for me. I got to go to Disney World, but I went in Matt Jennings because, number one, Matt did all the work. He was the means for me to go. I did not write a word of that essay. I don't even know what the essay was about. <laughs> he did all the work to earn us the trip to Disney World. And second, I got to go to Disney World because of my relationship with Matt. If I wasn't his brother, I wouldn't have gone. It was only because of my relationship with him that I went. That's the same idea with our relationship to Christ. We are saints in Christ because, number one, Christ did all the work. He earned sainthood for us. And number two, we're saints in Christ because it's only in relationship to him that you can be a saint. So I want to ask you, probably the most important question I could ask you this morning, do you know that you're a saint? Do you know that you're a saint? Do you know that this title applies to you? Do you know that you are a citizen of heaven? Fortunately, it's easy to know. Turn to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 9, we're going to look at Paul's goal in life. Here is Paul's goal in all of life. Verse 9, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. If you want to be a saint, if you want to be declared righteous by God, it's not through your works, it's not through your church attendance, it's not through your good deeds, it is simply through faith in Christ. Uh, that, That means believing that Jesus is who he says he was and did what he said he did. That Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth and died for your sins in your place and then rose from the dead. If you believe the truth of that good news that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, then you are a saint, whether you feel it or not. You're a saint and you always will be. Now, if there's something that's held you back from believing that good news, maybe some experience in your past, maybe some intellectual objection, please come talk to me or someone here this morning. There's nothing more important than you will ever do than to place your faith in Jesus Christ because that's how all this good stuff begins. Right now you're under God's wrath. Place your faith in Jesus and you are a recipient of his grace and peace now and forever. That's the good news of being saints in Christ Jesus. That's the first part of our identity as heaven's citizens. Let's move on to the second part, the second title that Paul uses. Look with me back in verse 1. Notice the title that Paul uses of he and Timothy. Bond servants of Christ. Now, that's a translation of the Greek word doulos. Uh, when we hear bond servants, unfortunately, in English, we tend to think of like servants in England. You know, people, you, you hire them and they come work in, their, in your house. That's not the idea here. A, a, a doulos is a slave. A doulos is a person who is owned by another person, who, who owes them their complete allegiance and obedience. Paul's saying, hey, Timothy and I, we are slaves of Jesus. Now, that's a little bit of a shocking title for Paul to use of himself. I mean, after all, this is the great Paul. Like he planted a ton of churches, took the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, wrote most of our New Testament, and yet Paul is no more than a slave of Jesus Christ. 
And if Paul is no more than a slave of Jesus Christ, then surely I'm no more than a slave. You're no more than a slave of Jesus Christ. Heavenly citizens are slaves of Jesus Christ. What Paul's telling us here, what he's reminding us is that heavenly citizens, we are owned by Jesus. We don't own ourselves. Jesus owns us. We owe him our complete obedience, our complete allegiance in every area of life. This ought to remind us some of last week's sermon from Don. Remember, in in Ephesians 2.10, he taught us how Jesus saved us for a purpose, to do good deeds in obedience to him. That's the idea of your salvation. You weren't saved to get out of hell. You were saved to do good deeds, to be Jesus' slave. Now, unfortunately, in English, we hear the word slave, and what do our minds think of? Something very negative. You don't want to be called a slave, and, and rightly so, because in human hands, slavery is an awful thing. In human hands, slavery turns to oppression, domination, terror. We, we, we obey human masters out of, out of compulsion, out of fear, but that's not at all what Jesus has in mind for us. Not at all what Jesus has in mind. In fact, slavery to Jesus, I, I, I would tell you, is actually a privilege. In fact, I would tell you it's your greatest privilege in life to be a slave of Jesus. And I want to prove that to you because that doesn't come naturally to us. We don't want to be slaves. So let me prove to you that slavery to Jesus is actually one of the greatest privileges you have in life. I want to teach you or, or show you a couple facts uh, that will hopefully motivate your slavery to Jesus. We'll show you how it's a privilege. First fact I want you to look at is found in chapter 2. Start in verse 5. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. One of the most significant passages in Philippians. We'll come back here a lot this semester. Start with me in verse 5. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Once you look back up at verse 7, what word do you notice? Bondservant, doulos, slave. Jesus was a slave first. Jesus is God's son. He's the second member of the Trinity. He created the universe. He has all power. He is infinite. He came to earth in human flesh, and yet he did not come in the form of a king or in the form of an aristocrat, in the form of a wealthy merchant. No, he gave up all his rights, all his privileges, and he came in the form of a slave. And then what did he do? He died a slave's death. That's what crucifixion is. Crucifixion was the worst form of execution the Romans had. They reserved it for slaves and and really bad criminals. Jesus gave up his rights and his freedoms to become a slave on our behalf and to die a slave's death. He did it for us. Jesus became a slave first. He did it for us to deliver us from the tyranny of sin. So when we're called to be a slave of Jesus, we do it not out of obligation but out of gratitude. How can I not give this man my whole life? When he who is God became a slave on my behalf and died the slave's death, I deserved. We're slaves of Jesus because it's a privilege to serve the one who gave up heaven to live and die for us. That's the first piece of motivation here. It's a privilege to be a slave of Jesus because he was a slave first for our benefit. Second piece of motivation, look at Romans 6.16. Paul says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? What's Paul's point there? Well, Paul is teaching us that human beings, spiritually speaking, are always slaves. 
We are always slaves of something. We are by nature slaves, spiritually speaking. Now, for unbelievers, they have only one option, to be a slave of sin. But Jesus came and he delivered us from the tyranny of sin. And now, believers, we have a second option. We can be slaves of Jesus Christ. And and, and when you look at this, I think it's really significant to, to notice there is no third option here. You can't choose to be a slave of sin or a slave of Jesus or be free. That's what all our world thinks. They think they're all free. No, that's not an option. We are slaves of something. We are slaves of whichever master we obey, either sin or Jesus. And Jesus is very much better. I want you to leave your finger in Philippians and flip over to Matthew chapter 11. Let's look at the, the nature, the character of this master to whom we follow. Matthew chapter 11, we're going to look at the very end of chapter 11, starting in verse 28. What does it mean to be a slave of Jesus? Look with me in in, in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the language of slavery. To take my yoke upon you means be my slave. But notice the kind of master Jesus is, humble of heart, gentle. I will give you rest for your souls. Do you think you'll find that kind of treatment if sin is your master? Do you think sin will treat you that way? No, when Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, he means that for everyone. When you practice sin, the result is death. For unbelievers, eternal death, eternal separation from God. For believers, a life of death. That verse applies to us. If we practice sin, we will experience death. We'll experience a life devoid of of meaning, of significance, of peace, of joy, a life of emptiness, life of a living corpse. That's the result of sin. So why is it a privilege to obey Jesus? Because frankly, it's infinitely better than the alternative. You are a slave of something, either sin or Christ. Be a slave of Jesus and he will give you rest for your souls. He will lead you to to lush pastures. Psalm 23 is all about Jesus. He's a good shepherd who will take care of you. Or follow the mastery of sin and live a life of death. I think that challenges us this week. It gives us a very clear application. Spend some time this week and ask yourself a question. Am I living as a slave of Jesus Christ or am I choosing to live as a slave of sin? For many of us, our lives are mixed. Many times we, we are following Jesus Christ, but sometimes sin. Is, is there maybe some dark corner of your life, some, some sinful thing that, that you've just allowed to endure, you've just accepted it, this is some sin in my life, I'm just going to live with it. I like it, I don't want to don't do away with it. If that's the case, realize that that part of your life is seeking to reap death in you, seeking to destroy you. Give that up. Let this be the week when you bow the knee before Jesus and say, Jesus, I agree, I am your slave. You purchased me, you own me. I want to give all of myself to you because you were a slave first on my behalf and because giving myself to you fully is infinitely better than the alternative. Spend some time this week thinking about your life, looking at your life. Is there any area where I am not obeying Jesus Christ, where I'm not living as his slave? If that's the case, turn your life fully over to him. Let 2009 be the year when all of us live as slaves of Jesus Christ. I think, practically speaking, it may be helpful. You may want to put this into practice. Wake up every morning and just remind yourself, by the grace of God, I am a slave of Jesus today. By the grace of God, I'm a slave of Jesus, not of sin. 
There's no other option. We're slaves of Jesus, so remind yourself of that and live like that. It's a privilege. It's the greatest privilege on earth because he's the greatest master imaginable. Now let's move on to the third part of our identity as citizens of heaven. Um, You probably noticed there, this is very unusual in any of Paul's letters. If you look back at Philippians uh, verse 1, he actually mentions here a subgroup within the church. He mentions the overseers and the deacons. That's very unusual. He doesn't do that anywhere else. Overseers, uh, that's a term that refers to those who exercise leadership and protection of the church. They protect the church from false teaching, from disunity, from sin. Uh, Those are the group of people we today call elders. These would be the elders in our church. And then he mentions deacons. Uh, That's from a Greek word meaning to serve. Deacons are those who lead through service. They take care of the needs of the church congregation. We have deacons today, just like they did back then. I think Paul mentions these two groups of leaders because he wants to commend them. Obviously, hey, they've done a pretty good job. This is the most mature church in the world back then. So he wants to commend them. And second, he wants to challenge them. These are going to be the guys that lead the charge against these threats that are coming against the church in Philippi. But for us, it's very convenient that Paul mentions these leaders because he reminds us of a third part of our new identity, a third part of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. We are servant leaders for Christ. We are servant leaders for Jesus Christ. Now, not all of us are called to be elders or deacons in a local church. That's okay. All of us are called to follow their example and step up in servant leadership, to influence others after the likeness of Jesus Christ, to move others towards Jesus. All of us are called to that in some part of life. That's the philosophy behind our mission statement here at Grace Bible Church. For those of you who have a bulletin, if you look at the front cover of your bulletin right now, you will see our mission statement. Raising up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ. That's why Grace Bible Church exists. To raise up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ. That's what all of us are called to do. What that means is that all of us are are growing in Jesus Christ and then reaching out and helping others. Raising others up in leadership. Now that doesn't, again, doesn't necessarily mean elder or deacon. It may be in your own home. As you raise and lead your children, you are being a servant leader. As you raise them to know and and follow Jesus Christ, that's servant leadership. Okay, Servant leadership may be leadership of one other person. Maybe you simply mentor a younger believer in the faith, a guy or a gal who's not quite as far along, and you just take them to lunch every week, and you share life with them, and you do life with them, and you help them grow. That's servant leadership. For some of you, it will mean leadership of a small group. You lead others in the study of God's word. For some of you, it might be leading some area of service at the church, like the deacons do, leading through service. In some way, all of us are called to be servant leaders here at Grace Bible Church in one form or another. So I need to ask you, have you stepped up? Are you being a servant leader for Jesus Christ? Many of you are mature enough in your walk that you can be mentoring another believer. Maybe the person next to you in the pew, you can take them to lunch and you can pass your life on to them. Some of you are ready to lead a small group. Some of you are even ready to lead a whole ministry. What's holding you back? Maybe you don't feel ready yet. You don't feel equipped and trained to be a servant leader. If that's the case, we have a lot of good options here for you at the church this semester to train you in servant leadership. I want you to grab your bulletin. There's an insert in there. I don't have a bulletin with me. Somebody got a bulletin? Ah, Thank you, sweetie. All right. Okay. We've got this little insert. It says, get connected. I want to point your attention to that. You got two sides here to this get connected thing. Okay. Uh, people look at small groups and Sunday school, adult Bible fellowships, all these things, and they wonder, you know, why, why do these things? Let me boil it all down. This, let me boil this whole sheet down to one idea for you. 
Why should you join one of these options this semester? Because it will prepare you to be a servant leader. That's your great privilege in life. This will prepare you to be a servant leader for Jesus Christ. There's a number of options here on the side that starts Adult Bible Fellowship. These are basically options for those people who really like Sunday mornings. You want to be equipped as a servant leader for Jesus Christ on Sunday morning. Uh, We've got a couple options. Number one are the Adult Bible Fellowships. You notice at the Southwood Campus, the Joshua class. That's an ongoing class. You learn from the Word of God. You learn in community with other believers. You grow as a servant leader. If you're looking for something shorter duration on a specific topic, you'll notice Grace Life Electives at the bottom. We have a couple classes that will be starting up here in a few weeks here at Grace Bible Church, one on love and respect. If you're engaged, if you're married, if you've been married for one year or 50 years, this class is for you. It trains you how to grow your marriage, how to deepen your marriage and improve it. Lance and Rhonda Sims will be teaching that. Second class on, on financial Crown Financial Ministries. If you're having struggles with your finances or if you just want to learn how to use your finances better, join that class. So these are opportunities for Sunday morning. If, if you prefer something other than Sunday morning, flip the page. Got lots of options for you here. You've got, uh, let's see, at the top, men's and women's Bible study. These are weekly Bible studies that you can join with men with other men, women with other women, and, and grow in your knowledge of God's Word uh, and your application of it as you grow in community with one another. We also have home churches, small groups that meet in people's homes, really great options. If you're a college student, we have all your options basically at the bottom of this page. Option number one is as soon as I'm done talking, just walk through the foyer to the fellowship hall over there and go to college class. College class is our opportunity for college students to gather together, learn from the word, worship God, and serve one another. Okay, so go to college class, plug in there. They have lots of opportunities for service for you to become a servant leader in college class. There's also a lot of Bible studies. If you are a college student, please join one of these Bible studies. For me, this was it was actually a Bible study of Philippians when I was a senior here at Grace Bible Church that most transformed my life. So join a small group Bible study here at Grace Bible Church if you're a college student. So lots of options. Why take advantage of these options? Why become a servant leader? Well, um, you know, as we look at servant leadership, as we look at, at serving in God's kingdom, it's important to remember uh, God is calling us to be servant leaders not because he needs our help. God is calling you to step up and lead within his kingdom not because he needs your service. God is God. He can do everything. He can do it better than we can. No, it's, it's kind of like a father helping a young child. When I was really young, really small child, my dad was really great at inviting me to join him in almost anything he did around the house. Whether it's fixing a piece of furniture, whether it's repairing the car, I was there. I was participating with him. Guess what? I wasn't helping. In fact, I'm sure I was a hindrance to my father. He could have done it quicker and neater if I wasn't there. But that wasn't what my dad was interested in. He wanted to invite me to join him in his work so that I could learn from him, so that I could become like him. Half the skills I know today, I know because when I was six years old, my dad called me out in the garage and we worked together. That's what it was going on here. God doesn't need our help. God offers us in grace the privilege. He says, I invite you in. I invite you to come join me in my work, not because I need you. I'm God, but because I want to give you grace. Because as your gracious heavenly father, I want to invite you into my work so you can learn from me, so that you can do something significant, so that you can make your life count for eternity. So this semester, God is giving you, he is handing you an incredible privilege, the opportunity to be a servant leader in his kingdom, in the home, in the church, in one form or another. That's a right that all of you have because God has given it to you. So this semester, step up in servant leadership. Step up, join one of these groups to be trained to grow as a servant leader. Some of you are already ready, and yet you're not a servant leader yet. If that's the case, come talk to me. 
or if you're a college student, talk to Trey Corey, our college pastor. We have opportunities for you to serve, to, f- to fulfill this gift that God has given you, the opportunity to join him in his work, building his kingdom. So Philippians is here to teach us that we are citizens of heaven and to teach us about our privileges and our priorities as citizens of heaven, of, of what life should look like as citizens of heaven. In these first two verses that we looked at this morning, uh, Paul revealed to us the new identity that we have as citizens of heaven. Number one, we are saints in Christ Jesus. We have a privileged position. We receive grace and peace rather than wrath because of what Christ has done and because of our relationship with Christ. That's great news. That's, that is a basis for hope even in awful times. You are a saint. Second part of your identity, you are a slave of Jesus Christ. He owns you. You owe him your complete allegiance, but it's a privilege because Christ was a slave for your benefit first and because Christ is the best possible master. And third, you have the opportunity to be a servant leader for Jesus Christ, to join God in his work of building his kingdom, of extending his gospel in this church, in your home, throughout the community. You can do that this semester. So I really want to challenge you all, just very practically speaking, to spend some time this week praying about these three facets of your identity. Pray, God, God, help me to, to know and believe that I'm a saint. Help me not to believe the, the lies of Satan that tell me that I'm worthless. Help me to remember I'm a saint because of what Jesus did for me. Spend some time praying, God, help me to remember that I'm also Christ's slave. Convict me of areas of my life where I'm not living as his slave, where instead I'm following the mastery of sin. And finally, God, help me to, to, to really step up in leadership, to take advantage of this incredible opportunity, this incredible privilege you've graced me with. Let this semester be the time that I step up in leadership and serve you and make an eternal difference. I'm going to close in prayer and pray for us to be people who are saints, slaves, and servant leaders for Christ. Lord God, we do indeed thank you. All of these facets of our identity, these titles that we enjoy, they're because of you and they're through your son, Jesus Christ. We didn't earn them. We don't merit them. We'll never deserve them. They're all through you. And so, Father, I pray that we would be faithful to live them out. I pray for every person in this room. Help us to live as saints this week. Help us to live with bold confidence, knowing we're forgiven, knowing that we're saved, knowing that we'll spend eternity with you. Help us also, Lord, to live as slaves of Jesus Christ. I really do pray, Father. I just pray that you would help us to fight the lies of these world that teach us that we're, that we're independent, that we have a right to our own lives. Help us to remember we're either following Jesus or we're following sin. Help us to, to give ourselves over completely to the mastery of Jesus Christ. Pray that you would convict all of us of any even small areas where we're not walking in allegiance to him. Finally, Lord, I pray that we would be servant leaders that we would grow to be leaders in your church and in our homes and in this community to, to take your gospel forth, to glorify you on this earth. Thank you for the privilege of being your servant leaders, Lord, even though you don't need us, that you graciously welcome us into your work. We are so graced by you. You are so good to us through your son, Jesus. I pray that we would be people who, who respond in gratitude. Thank you for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.